All right. Let's uh, take our Bibles again this morning, and we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, continuing in this great passage of Scripture concerning what the Word of God tells us about the unique high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, I left off last time in verses 12 and 13, describing to you the terror of the Word of God, what the Word of God was saying to those who actually disbelieved, who didn't believe, or people who say they believe, but in their heart they really don't believe. And so those who disbelieve the oath of God will stand and they will enter into, they will not enter into into God's rest. They will be left with the terror of the word of God to which there is no escape. The reason for that is because the word can cut through your defenses The word can lay bare all your innermost thoughts, your intentions, your secrets, making it impossible to avoid God's judgment. That's why the word of God is terrifying. God Almighty is perfectly aware and can deal with us according to Not what we appear to be, but he can deal with us and will deal with us according to who we really are, who he knows us to actually be. We can fake it a lot, but you cannot fake it before God. Because he searches down to such of the depths of our hearts in judgment that he will expose all unbelievers. In fact, in verse 13, it says this of chapter 4, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything is laid open and bare before that, before the eyes of God. But the good news was this, to those who believe, who continue to believe, There is good news, and that good news is to those who trust God's promises and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will enter into God's rest. For them, instead of the terror of the Word of God being against them, they will have a merciful high priest who is for them, interceding on their behalf helping them to hold fast their profession and their confession. Why do we need a high priest? Because God's well aware that we are weak. Are we not? Are we not people who are prone to wander? Don't we get distracted very easily? The slightest thing can get our attention. And move us away from our confession, our profession, what we're supposed to be in Christ. The lust of the flesh, as it says in John, the lust of the eyes, 
the pride of life are always there. Satan wants to tempt you and gain advantage in your life as a believer. That's why in verse 14 through 16, look what it says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the promise that God gives to those who believe, who continue in the faith. So see, once you're cleansed of all your sin, and you start down that road on your Christian pilgrimage, how is it possible to find strength to continue if it doesn't come from somewhere other than ourselves. We have no strength to do what God asks us to do. Well, the answer to that question is found in the unique character and the nature of our great God and Savior, our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. And just as the people in the Old Testament needed a ministry of the high priest, so we also are in need of the high priest's assistance every single day of our lives. We need divine help. And that's what the point is in Scripture. You got it. You got the divine help. In fact, the Lord has accomplished everything so we have that help available to us every single day. In other words, we can continue to press on in our pilgrimage because of four essential aspects of the priesthood of Christ. This morning, though, I'll probably just examine one of them. In fact, it was my intention to do verse 14 to 16, but it didn't happen. I couldn't get out of verse 14. I don't usually do that, but I... There was so much there, I, I, I couldn't get out of it. So I, I want you to see some of the things that are here and that to look at within this passage, there is a very practical application found in our text this morning in verse number 14. And I read it, and I want to look at the first essential aspect of the priesthood of Christ, and it's this, that we can't continue to press on in our pilgrimage because Jesus is our victorious high priest. Now, underneath that, there are certain things that qualify him to be victorious. And the first one is found in verse 14. To be victorious, Jesus had to be a great high priest. If you notice in verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high High priest. This is the first time that it, Jesus is referred to in this way, that Jesus is not only a high priest, a chief priest, but he is a priest to the superlative degree. He is the great high priest. It means 
that his priesthood had a greater range, a greater cost, a greater depth, and a greater efficacy than any other priest that went before him. That this very word, great, is the word we would use, mega, meaning big, but it is used in different ways. It's used of people and things that are highly esteemed for their excellence. It's used of, in a way of, of intensity or degree. And then it's also used to mean in all respects. Well, in this passage of Scripture, we see that Jesus Christ, in the book of Hebrews, is called high priest because by undergoing a bloody death, He offered himself an expiatory sacrifice to God, meaning that Jesus was victorious as the one who had no rival, the one, no one came close in degree to Jesus Christ. Because not only was he, as I mentioned before, the one who offered the sacrifice, but like no other priest before him, He was the sacrifice. As John the Baptist pointed him out and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, right? Who takes away the sins of the world. He is that Lamb that becomes the sacrifice. So, see, Jesus Christ is victorious because He is like no other high priest. And then a second thing that qualifies Him to be victorious is, is in verse 14, and it's found where it says in verse 14, Jesus, the Son of God, the very word Jesus, means that he was a human priest. It uses the word and Jesus here. Remember, Jesus is his human name. Jesus is not only his human name, but it was given to him at a miraculous virgin birth and indicates the work he had to do on behalf of sinners. In fact, in Matthew one twenty one, what does it say there? Remember, she will bear a son and you shall call his name, what? Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That Jesus was human. And he comes as a human to be a substitute to save sinners like you and I. And he is totally qualified as a perfect human. One who's never sinned, who's never violated the law, who never was disobedient to the Father. He always did what was right. He always did the will of his Father. And so therefore, there was no blemish in him. There was nothing in him that could have prevented him from doing his mission. So that Jesus fought the greatest battle on our behalf. And he won the greatest victory over sin and death. And he did that as a man. Never underestimating scripture, the humanity of Jesus Christ. In fact, he couldn't be a high priest. The great high priest, unless he understood fully what humanity was and what humanity went through. And the temptation that humanity goes through every single, every single day of their lives. And I'm going to look at that at another day, but this becomes important, that his victory was in 
that he was a human priest. And then thirdly, to be victorious, Jesus had to have a relationship to God the Father. Verse 14, it says, Jesus, the Son of God, so connected with him as being human, is the term that designates Jesus Christ as divine in nature. So included in his name, God and man becoming one person. This becomes a mystical union that is very difficult to understand and hard to wrap your mind around. Yet nonetheless, Jesus Christ had a relationship to the Father because he was with the Father in the beginning and came into this world as a babe in a manger But he was there with the Father having a relationship. His relationship went on while he was human being on this earth. And remember, when he leaves this earth, he goes back and he continues that relationship with the Father. So we see here that Jesus participates fully in our nature. And by him entering into our nature he enters into our condition he enters into our suffering he enters into our sorrow he enters into our temptation so by the incarnation he becomes man but his becoming a man is also the prerequisite of his becoming high priest not just a priest but the great high priest and back in chapter 2 In verse number 17, it says this, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So what does he do? Jesus brings, in Jesus Christ, two things come together and shows us that Jesus' priesthood was supremely different than all others who went before him. And just to mention one reason, that Jesus perfectly knew God and he perfectly knew man. No other high priest was able to do that. No other high priest was able to be victorious in these ways unless they had these characteristics. And then in verse 14, that Jesus is victorious because he is the unique priest. And I want you to look at what it says here in this passage. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, there is something here in this phrase that cannot be missed because it brings together his greatness and his humanness and his uniqueness and his divinity by adding a very interesting piece of truth that essentially... It shows us that Jesus had gone where no man has gone before, where no man could have ever gone unless he was the Son of God, human and great as he was. The phrase here in Scripture is is who passed through the heavens. It really means to pass through somewhere or some place in order to get someplace else. The verb actually used here is in the perfect tense, which is very important because it indicates that Jesus passed through the heavens and is still there. That's why the Holy Spirit used that tense 
to let us know that where he is now, he's still there. So that means right now, Jesus Christ is still there as our high priest, ready and willing to accomplish his mission there as we await the next thing that takes place in God's plan. Now, this term, the heavens, can be taken in two ways. The first is that the heavens refer to the place of God's glorious residence, the holy habitation of God, the resting resting place of blessed souls. It is where his throne is, where thousands of his holy ones stand before him, serving him and worshiping him. It could also be taken this way, to mean the air. To mean where the birds fly, where the sun, the moon, and the planets, and the stars, and the galaxies hang out. That is, Jesus is the agent through whom the entire universe of space and time were created. Who created every speck of dust in the hundreds, thousands, millions of galaxies and who also created all the micro, sub-micro systems, and he passes through them, ascends above them in what we call the third heaven. Scripture calls the third heaven, or the heaven of heavens, the place where God dwells. So I believe that it's, it's used in both senses. It's kind of like you put them together and and you get the picture that Jesus is essentially great and victorious because he has gone where no man has gone before. He has gone where no other high priest has gone. All that has gone before him concerning the function of the high priest were all just shadows and pictures and types and road signs that would all be fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus Christ. For example, take your Bibles for a minute, turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Just a few verses there. In the course of the duty of a high priest, if you know anything about it, if you're gaining somewhat of a knowledge of what the high priest does in the Old Testament, he had a Many functions, but one of the most important function, or his chief function, was to go once a year on the Day of Atonement, or today, uh, Yom Kippur would be the highest Jewish holy day. He would enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would do that as a human priest after elaborate preparation elaborate cleansing ceremonies before he can go one day out of the year. And he, the only the high priest, could go and offer sacrifice first for himself and then for his family and for the people, the sins of the people of Israel. He had to do that, so he had to prepare himself. And there are several things that become important for us to understand what Jesus did in Leviticus chapter 16. Look at verse 17. The high priest on the day of atonement 
the first thing he did was he went out of the sight of the people and also all the ministering priests, where it says in verse 17, when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel, that this high priest had a very significant job. He couldn't mess this up. If he messed it up, if someone even peeked in to try to see what was going on, they would be immediately killed, the high priest would be killed, because he was stepping into a place that God only allowed one man one time a year to step, and that's right into the Holy of Holies. And that he was to pour the blood on the mercy seat. So the people's sins and his sins and his family's sins could be atoned for. Kippur is the, the covering of sin. Yom Kippur, that's what it means. It means to cover over their sins. So God, it would blot it out so God couldn't see their sin. And for a whole year this would last. And then he would do it again the next year on this high holy day. A second thing that took place on the day of atonement for the high priest is that he passed through the second curtain. Remember there was a first curtain where you entered in and there was the table of showbread, there was the the altar of incense, there was the lamp that burned, and then there was another curtain before that. And beyond that curtain was the Holy of Holies. You could only go in that part once a year. And so what happened is that on the Day of Atonement, he was able to pass through the second curtain the material, in the material tabernacle, or called the Tent of Meeting, and he went into the Holy of Holies, and no one could see him. Look at, look at verse 2 of Leviticus 16. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I, of course, that's what it says there for the second part of it, is that he will enter in, he alone will enter in, and once he entered in, the veil came in from behind him, so it shut him in there, separated from all the people, and put him in a holy place. And then notice a third thing that took place in verse 2. The high priest on the Day of Atonement went into the presence of God. Look at the last part of verse 2 of Leviticus 16. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Could you imagine? I, I, I couldn't even imagine how that must have felt to be in the presence of God and know it and be allowed to be there. There was no privilege higher than this privilege. And not everybody was picked for this. This was only certain men picked for this, and they had to be qualified in all kinds of ways to perform this duty. And this was repeated every year on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. Now, Let's turn back to Hebrews. What does Jesus, the great high priest, do for us? Well, the first thing he does is that he entered into the holy place made without hands. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, the first part of that verse. It says this, 
For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Hebrews 9.24, a mere copy of the true one. So Jesus, what he does is he enters into the actual holy place of God. And again, keeping your hand there in Romans 9, look at Romans 8, chapter 1 and 2. I mean, verse, verse 1 and 2. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, in the truth tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So where the Lord goes, like I said, no high priest could have ever gone. So this was all a picture of what Christ would do and finally do on behalf of us so we can truly be saved so there doesn't have to be a high priest that has to do it every year in and out and in and out and it goes on and on. It just feels like it never get there. Christ finishes it. A second thing is that Jesus passes through these heavens. That's the second curtain between us and the holy sanctuary. Listen, can we see God? Has anybody who ever traveled in space ever seen God? Or even had a glimpse of the glory of God as far as being in this holy place? No. Why? Because there's a veil between us. We cannot go into the presence of God. No one can. No one knows how to. No one has the ability to. So all our arguments are foolishness to God. To think that we can even possibly make it to God on some kind of whimsical philosophical system or religious system that we've made up and enter into the presence of a holy God. It'll never happen, brethren. What's the penalty? For sin, death. Separation from God forever. Jesus passes through these heavens, the second curtain between us and the holy sanctuary, and actually enters into heaven itself. Look at verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. No one could have done that. No one was able to do that. And then what else did Jesus do? Jesus was hidden from everyone's sight when heaven took him. But Jesus, he passed into the presence of God himself as a man, as the very God-man. And notice what it says in verse 24, the last part, now to appear in the presence of God. Isn't that great? But look at what's added there. He appears into the presence in the presence of God for who? For us, not for himself. He appears there so he can take us there. He appears there and accomplishes everything and is totally and completely victorious so he can take us there. The only way you can get there is if Jesus Christ is your high priest. You know why? Because you're not going to get into God's holy presence unless someone has blazed the trail to get there who is qualified at all points. And the only one in Scripture is Christ himself. Now, the, the heaven, 
that Jesus entered into, what does he do there? He sits at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Hebrews 1.3, he started out like that. And he must remain there. Remember the perfect tense. Where Jesus has gone, he's still there. Right now, while we live in human history, Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is still there. But his plan's not done yet. So, in a very, it's exciting to know that God's plan's not done and we're in the midst of the movement of it. That should excite your heart. It should thrill you. It should bring you to a place to make some, some very important decisions and have some deep convictions about what's going on. But I want you to notice something. Again, look over to Acts chapter 3 and verse number 20. Because he's seated there on the right hand of the majesty on high and must remain there until the time comes for God to restore all things. Remember that passage way back when in Acts chapter 3, verse 20. And notice what it says there. At the, it says, and that he may... Send Jesus, that's the end of verse 20, the Christ appointed for you. Look at verse 21 of Acts chapter 3. Whom heaven must receive. See, heaven has to receive Jesus. And then notice what else. Until the period of rest, the restoration of all things. So that means this, that Jesus ascended into heaven. Remember, until the day when he was taken up, to heaven after he had by the holy spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen he didn't leave like everybody else leaves the earth he went from time back to eternity how do you do that under his own power he does it jesus took his seat at the right hand of God, and he is seated there, as I said, still. What is he doing there in heaven? What he, why is he seated there in heaven? Well, he's ruling and reigning there in heaven. As it says in Matthew, the passage of Scripture he gave to the disciples as he was, before he ascended to heaven, where he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." I have authority. Authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What else is he doing? He's calling people to himself. He's calling people to the ministry that he has as a high priest. He's calling people by the gospel of Christ to himself to be saved. He's doing that right now all over the world. He's doing that. But a third thing he does is that he intercedes for us. Romans tells us this. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So our great high priest, here's his ministry for us, praying on our behalf. John 17, 15. Lord, I, I don't, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you keep them from the evil one. Right? That's a high priestly prayer. So you know that, that means is that why do we have trouble and weakness and tribulations and suffering after we become believers? Because in this world, there's going to be those things. Why? Because we have someone against us more so now 
because we're in Christ, because now we have the identity of Christ in our life. So he intercedes for us as our great high priest. That's why we need a high priest. But this process will come to an end. When? Well, when Jesus returns to earth, he will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will come riding on the clouds of heaven, surrounded by an innumerable amount of his holy angels and redeemed saints. And why is he coming? He's coming, as it says in verse 21, to restore all things, to bring restitution to all things. Christ will come back to reconstitute the universe. Paul told the Ephesians, summing up all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. So, do you see the greatness of the victory the Lord has accomplished on your behalf? And hopefully you will come to see how much you need the high priest, Jesus Christ, who sits there in heaven now while we're still on earth, going through all this stuff. And he's praying on our behalf. He's waiting for us to come to him when we're in trouble. When we need help. When we're weak. And we're stumbling. And he's come to help us for this very purpose. So we don't let go of our profession in Christ. So we don't drop our profession in Christ and say, ah, forget it. So we don't do that. That's his main ministry to us. So in light of this victory that Jesus won for us, and this encouraging ministry taken up for us as the high priest, for his children, it's no time for you and I, go back to Hebrews chapter 4, it's no time for you and I really to sit on the bench. It is no time for you and I to have caution. It's no time to be a coward. It's no time to be silent. It's not a time to thoughtlessly and lightly dismiss and abandon our confession concerning Christ Jesus and what He accomplished on our behalf. It is time for you and I to be fearless in our witness, to hold fast to our confession and profession, to hold it forth, and yes, to advertise it. It's time for that. And we have all of heaven on our side. Here's our duty, based on the truth just explained. Look what it says in verse number 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's the practical application. Well, let us hold it with all our strength. Let us hold it firmly so no one could rob it from us. Because I believe that you're going to see in Scripture and why possibly Hebrews was written was that someone's trying to rob your confession. Someone's trying to throw a monkey wrench in the whole works. So how do you know? How do you know you have faith? And are holding fast your confession. How do you know that? 
Well, if faith is the root of our confession, then obedience must be the fruit of our confession. Because is not this a call to obedience? Here's our responsibility on earth while Christ is interceding for us as the high priest. Hold fast to what you know is the truth. By faith, hold it fast. Do you see God now? No. But you know that God and his word are true. So therefore, hold fast to what has been spoken to you. Hold it fast and don't let go of it. Because your obedience is the fruit of your confession. Your obedience is the fruit of your profession. So I know you are holding fast and I am holding fast to our confession by the fruits of of our obedience. Do we take what God says seriously? And I think that several things happen when we think about obedience. Obedience is is something that has to start from inside. If we're Christians, I'm not talking about doing this on your own strength because you have that ability to do that. I'm talking about it starts from the inside. So there must be first internal obedience. That, that's, that means when, when I become a Christian, when you become a Christian and Christ saves you inside of me, he puts his spirit and the spirit of God gives me this internal drive to want to follow Christ. And at the same time, we understand we're toddling and we're, we're weak and we, we're struggling and it, it is a pilgrimage. It is, a, I, we don't always see clearly and we fall on our face and we sin, but Ultimately, in our heart, there is this eternal drive to want to please Christ. Several ways this has been communicated in Scripture. In one passage of Scripture, Paul says this in Romans 6, but now, in verse 6, verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. That means once you become a Christian, you have a benefit that has been given to you by God. What is it? Here it is. Sanctification. God's setting you apart, and the outcome of, of sanctification is what? Eternal life, in which I go into the presence of God, where my high priest is, and I see God. Even when going through the book of Acts, he said this to the people, and God who knows the hearts, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did with us, and he made no distinction between them and us. And then he says, cleansing their hearts by faith. See, that's salvation. That something happened to you and I inside of us. And so, so that because of that, we have a profession that God's given to us, and we really desire deeply in our heart, in all our weakness and stumbling, to please God. We get knocked down, we get back up. We get sidetracked, we get back on track. All of that is the way our life's going to be until we get into the presence of God. And Paul told the Corinthian church something similar where he said to them, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So now God giving us a desire to put our own recognized sin to death. 
to recognize that when we are tempted with our eyes, with the lust of the eyes, with the lust of the flesh, and with the pride of life, we don't want to go there. Because we know that if we start loving those things, the love of God's not in my heart, and so therefore my profession is in question. God wants to give us the confidence not to live there. So there is something that goes along with an internal obedience. And I'm not talking about just morality. There are many people who are moral. I'm talking about a morality that comes from an internal obedience to Christ. So there is, secondly, an external obedience. Now, that's not hard to figure out, but failure in your external obedience can lead to a complete overthrow of your confession. In other words, this is how I know you're a believer. That because of the drive that God's given you and the understanding he's given you and the word of God he's given you and the relationship he's given you with the high priest, that you have an internal drive that wants to externally live for Christ. You don't want to do it with a mask on. You don't want to do it because that's hypocrisy. You don't want to do it with hypocrisy. You want to do it with what? Love for Christ. Now, with that thought in mind, take your Bibles and look over to Philippians chapter 3. Back to Philippians. If you go back a couple books, there's Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Because in, in every, it's, this is amazing. In every epistle, we're warned about this. We're warned about people that give the appearance they're believers, but they're really not. Look at Philippians 3 verse 17. It says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In fact, Paul is saying, listen, follow me and the the disciples that follow me and and follow their example because they have the example of an internal confession. But look at verse 18. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Brethren, would you say that there's a battle for your mind once you become a believer? Matter of fact, the main battle is for your mind. In other words, what you think about. All over Scripture, you find that the Scripture is admonishing us to listen. Cast your care upon Christ. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. What? And think on these things. Right? Why are we to think this way? Because thinking has everything to do with whether you're going to internally obey and then externally obey, therefore holding to your profession. So, 
Don't ever think lightly about your thoughts flying all over your head and you're thinking about this and that and all kinds of lustful things going through your mind and all kinds of illicit relationships going through your mind and all kinds of things people said to you and things you saw by watching movies and this like that going through your mind and you entertain them for a while and then all of a sudden, boom, you're starting to think about them a lot. That that's not a battle for your mind. And where's that coming from? It's not coming from, from God's spirit. It's not coming from your internal obedience. It's coming from the enemy who wants ground. He wants your identity from Christ. That's what he wants. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse number 19. Look again. Uh, the warning again. This is, this is um, um, amazing to me as I see this, even concerning my own life. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Would you say that's true? You think the Lord knows those who are His? I think He does, doesn't He? Right? But look what it says in the passage. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from what? Wickedness. Is that not external obedience? Why do I abstain from wickedness? Because it's bad? No. Because I have a relationship to Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is my Lord. Because he died for that sin. Because all sin is an offense to him. So therefore, I don't want to go there in my mind I want to begin to put sin to death in my thoughts. I want to be transformed in the renewing of what? My mind, Romans 12. So I can what? Know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If I am thinking other than what I should be thinking as a believer, then therefore, why am I always confused about not knowing what God wants me to do? Because I haven't been abstaining from wickedness. I've been entertaining it in my mind. I've been enjoying it in my mind. I've been enjoying my fantasy life in my mind. My secret little life I have in my mind. I've been enjoying that. Put that to death, please. That is nothing but wickedness. Don't give ground to Satan that you already have. Don't do that. That's what the Word of God is telling us, that this is external obedience. It's all based on my profession, my confession in Christ, my practical application, everyday living in this world. I need Jesus as my high priest to take care of these things. And then, brethren, if you want to turn to another passage, this is the one that, man, if this doesn't knock you off your feet, no passage will when it comes to this. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. Titus 1.16. Look what it says. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That separates it right there. People can go all day long and say, I profess to know God. Your, your 
internal obedience must meet your external obedience. And you do it because you love Christ. That's why you do it. See, in your Christian confession and profession, in other words, your behavior should be clear. when it's compared to your confession. Your words should be clear when compared to your confession. Now, brethren, I know that in this mixed, we're going to fall on our faces. And we're going to commit sin. But we're going to commit sin as a believer. And we're going to get back up. And we're going to confess our sin. And the power of the cross is going to be efficacious to us because Christ will not have to go back and redo it because we, we, we failed, and we're going to get back there, and we're going to be cleansed by him, by his efficacious blood and the power of the cross every day, and we're going to live for him, and we're going to watch out for that sin, and we're going to watch out what we think, because we don't want to live there. That's why. Brethren, I have to say this, that... You know, in the passage of Scripture where it talks about the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, what's, what, what's very interesting um, about when we allow Satan to take ground from us. And, and believe me, when you became a Christian, you're free to love and serve Christ like you were never able to do before. But there's a battle going on for your mind. And Satan wants to gain a foothold in your life. You can give him the right. You can give him the right to take advantage of you. How do you do that? By believing his lies. And believe me, he has all of them. He has all the lies that you can possibly think of. And by living in sin. Go on living in sin. You want to give ground to Satan, go on and live in sin. And believe me, you'll give him all the ground he needs. And he'll tangle your life up. He'll twist things so confusing in your life, you'll, you won't know who you are. You won't even know your name. Because his point is to destroy you. To destroy your confession. To make it null and void where people say, when you tell them I'm a Christian, they, they look the other, mm-hmm, mm, sure. You know, none of us are, none of us are um, exempt from what I'm saying. So it should bring conviction to us very deeply in our heart. Because when we give ground to Satan, what happens is that he draws you away from the will of God. Then he draws you away from the word of God. Then he draws you away from the worship of God. And then he destroys your dependence on God and your confidence in God and then ultimately your your obedience to God. That's what he does. That's his pattern. His pattern is easily discovered in Scripture. He works the same way all the time. That's his goal, to move you away from your confession and your profession. See, how much we need the high priest, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just by one little example, 
He may tempt you in this way. Why don't you just go ahead and live on the fringe of immorality? Just on the fringe. Don't go overboard. Don't, don't go too heavy. Just live on the fringe of immorality. Listen, you have freedom as a Christian. He'll tell you that. Go ahead and live there. Enjoy life. You're saved now. Don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. He'll convince young people. Go ahead and go out. And, and hold hands. Go ahead and go out a little little kiss here and there. Don't any, hurt anybody. That, that, that's cute. That's all very innocent. He'll lie to you. And he'll convince you through all kinds of means that all those things are all right. But he will never let you see that he's helped you pull the pin from the hand grenade. And it'll all seem all very innocent. And yet we have a whole book in the Bible called Proverbs that admonishes all of us that when you're a young person, listen, you need to grow out of being foolish. You need to grow out of being naive. You need to grow out of being a scoffer. Grow out of those things. Why? So you can have the blessing of God upon your life and not have the destruction of Satan come into your life. In fact, take your Bibles and quickly turn to Proverbs chapter chapter 1, chapter whatever chapter you want to turn there. Look at chapter 1. I think this is the chapter I want. But look what it says in so many places in Scripture. It says in, in verse number 20 of chapter of 1 of Proverbs, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts up her voice in the square at the head of the noisy street. She cries out at the entrance of the great gates in the city. She utters her sayings at the head. Or verse 22, How long, O oh, you naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof, wisdom calling. Turn. Of course, the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? The fear of God is the beginning of what? Knowledge, right? So wisdom comes from fearing God first. That's the context in which this is being said. And it's talking about wisdom. Verse 24. Because I called to you and you refused. I stretched out my hands and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 30. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned my reproof. They shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satisfied in their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. So brethren, from Scripture, what we see here 
And then look over to chapter 5 again, verse 21. Again, that wisdom is there. It's available to you, but you don't have to listen. You can lay it aside. You can push it aside. But then you're going to reap the benefits. You're going to reap the, the results of your own foolishness, your own being naive and that of being even a scoffer. Chapter 5 and verse number 21, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. In other words, you will be so tangled up in your sin. You won't know what's up or what's down. Now, see, either Scripture is true or it's not. And, brethren, I say this, that it's true. Right? So don't hang around, young people, with people who are fools and people who are scoffers and people who are naive. Don't call them your friends. A friend is someone who loves you and respects you, watches out for you, what you own and your possessions. Now, what do I mean? A person who is your friend will not violate your person that is manipulating your mind to get to your body and rob you of your virginity and your chastity for the young people. As an example. Sin will leave you destitute of self-respect if you prostitute yourself to a so-called friend like that. God's calling us to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. All that people want to do today is gratify their flesh. And if a person won't gratify their desires, then they will drop that person like a hot potato and go to someone else who will. That's the way it works. As soon as you deny him or her what you what they want, they will show you that, they'll really show you their true colors. They will mock you. They will leave you. They will ostracize you from the group. And they'll go supply their selfish needs somewhere else. And you know what? That's okay for someone who has a profession and a confession of Christ in their hearts. It is okay to stand alone. It is okay to do what God wants you to do in the right way. And is that love anyway? That's not love. Lust is not love. Young men and young women, if you continue to go with them, then you'll become just like them. And if so, you deserve everything that life offers. But hopefully your mom and your dad... Fear God enough to tell you to keep away from such company. To self-save yourself from the deep and prolonged and down-the-road heartache and pain that comes with hanging with people that all they want to really do is gratify the lust of their flesh. If we listen to God's wisdom... He'll supply your needs, and he'll delight your soul. Serve Jesus, really, and live. 
So for young people, don't court and date and be interested in unsafe people or marry them. For young men, stay away from women who are foolish and naive and do not fear God. I'm assuming you want to fear God. And parents, live wisely before your kids and don't give in to these subtle lies of the enemy who wants to take ground from you and your kids and your family and this church and any church. Is this a constant battle and fight? Absolutely. It's not going to end. It's going to get more fierce. So I think that there's, as I was studying Proverbs many years ago, I came across ten things that a parent should teach their kids. Teach your kids to love God, you love God. Teach your kids to guard their minds, you guard their minds. All of these come from Proverbs. Teach your kids to honor their parents, but make sure that you're worthy of honor. Teach your kids to control their thoughts. Teach your kids to be faithful to their spouses when they do get married. Teach your kids to watch their words because their words revealed what's in their hearts. Teach your kids to persevere in your work and honor the Lord with your work. Teach your kids to honor the Lord with your wealth and then to be generous. And then teach your kids to select companions and friends and potential spouses correctly. Now, if I left you right there, this is the practical application that I'm giving you in, in one particular area concerning holding to our confession, holding to our profession. That young people, someday you are going to get married. <clears throat> but you can't go by Hollywood standards. You've got to go according to God's standards. And wise people... Find out what God's standards are before they get into serious or any relationships. And the first standard for everybody that you and I should have ever contact with, especially the person who you're going to actually say yes to, is they must seek God's will. That's first. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He knows what's going on in your life. The high priest is aware of all your weaknesses, all your desires, all your intentions. He's aware of all those things. The second thing is that person must be a Christian. That's, there's no exception. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness and fellowship has a, with light and darkness? The third thing is that the person should have some spiritual value. In, in other words, they, they should be wise, at least beginning to be wise. And that, above all, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Love her, that's wisdom, and she'll watch over you. Somebody who's wise, who loves wisdom, who loves God. Someone with good training. This is desirable. 
These are not all things that could be absolute in, in every situation, but they're desirable. Someone who has uh, good training and background. In fact, the Proverbs tells us a good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. The person should be good-natured and even-tempered. In other words, if you marry someone who is very prideful, why would they change once you get married? If you married someone who's very, very angry, why should they change if you, uh, once you get married? If you married someone who's an alcoholic, why do you expect them to change once you get married? If you marry someone who's smoking dope, why, why do you think you're going to stop smoking dope or taking drugs because you get married? They're not. They may for a while to get you, and then they'll go back to their old ways because there's no change. There's, that's why the person has to be a Christian and not a Christian just in profession, a Christian in deed. They're serving God even if you weren't there. Even if they never met you, they're going to serve God. That should be the intention. That should be your intention. That should be all our intentions when it comes to this particular area. So a person needs to be even-tempered. That's needful. Nothing like a consistent person. Proverbs 22 says, Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Here's something that's vital. The person should be ambitious and industrious. In other words, they work. They actually have a job or desire to work. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. If you think you're going to marry somebody who's a a couch potato and a sluggard and don't want to work, that they're going to start working because you get married? Ridiculous, not going to happen. must have good morals. Young people, if I could admonish you that every day you would tell yourself, I'm going to be a pure virgin until the day I say yes to the one God gives me in marriage. Say that to yourself every single day in the mirror. Why? Because you're going to hear it 20 other times in a different way that same day. That's saying this, Satan's lie. Oh, don't worry about that. People live together now. They experience each other now before that serious commitment of saying, I do. That's a bunch of hogwash. That's lies from the pit of hell. You want to be, you want to be sure. Keep yourself pure. Amen? Keep yourself pure. All of us ought to keep ourselves pure. Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find? For her worth is far above jewels. Nothing like that. And then marry somebody who believes that marriage is a lifetime agreement. That if we're going to get married, it's forever. Whatever happened in, in sickness and death and 
and all the other stuff that goes with that. I don't have that memorized. But it should be forever, right? And anybody can confess and admit that there's different phases of marriage. There's difficulties you go through in marriage that are, are hard. And yet, when you have a high priest who understands all your weaknesses and needs and the phases of life, and you have a husband and wife seeking him out, then what is he going to do? He's going to help you keep your profession. He's going to increase your faith. He's going to make you strong on, in this pilgrimage of life. He's going to even cause you to be a good example to other people, to direct your kids somewhat in the direction that they're going to see that you were right on some things, and God's always right. And marry somebody who believes that children are a heritage and a gift from God. Well, I said more than I planned to this morning. But just, I could have went 15 different places with this application here. But how much we need to hold on to what God's given us. Hold on to that profession and run to our high priest, Jesus Christ, for mercy and help. And the Lord is fully and completely available and qualified to help you. Don't ever say that he can because Satan will say, God don't like you. Nobody likes you. Why would he listen to you? That will be the lie. And multi-different colors, that'll be the lie, right? See, you don't need your self-esteem built up. Believe me, you have plenty of that as a sinner. What you need is you need to be, and I need to be on our, uh, we both need to be on our faces before God, asking God for help, asking God to give us strength, asking God to help us to overcome the, the thoughts in our mind that are not pleasing to him, and we know it. Helping us to, when we, if we're going into a situation, to give us the strength, if we know there's going to be all kinds of dubious things happening that particular day, Lord, help me to go in there with your strength and your wisdom. And if I need to get out, give me the strength to get out. See, that's what God does. He's going to help you and I keep our profession, both in our internal obedience and our external obedience. Amen? That's what he's going to do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. I ask you, Lord, that you would continue to bless us with it. I ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would make us people that are serious about it. That the sins that we've committed, the mistakes that we have made in laying it aside in possibly getting away from being serious about it, in fudging on some things. I pray today, Lord, we would get this stuff corrected, that we would turn to you, and we would uh, cast our care upon the one who really cares for us, who really loves us, who really wants us to live a life that is 
honorable before God. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to do that every day. And Lord, now as we come to the Lord's table, Lord, help us to prepare ourselves, to examine ourselves, to look at ourselves. And Lord, and to confess our sin. And then, Lord, help us to be thankful and joyful about what you've done. Help us to declare our belief in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, to declare our belief in the physical death of Christ and his resurrection, to declare our belief in the return of Christ. And I pray in the interim, Lord, you would give us the strength to live for Christ. So, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, make us ready for it. Make us prepared for it. And we'll give you the glory and praise, Lord, for all that you accomplish. In Christ I pray this. Amen.